Good morning, church. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you have them. And if you must, turn in your electronic mediums. Zach. To Genesis 11. <laughs> and if, we, if you would, read along with me. Not read along. Follow along with me. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower, whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to a daunting task as we come to read and hopefully understand your word. We come, Lord, to hear from you, and we pray that this day you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and that we believe here in some way, instructed, encouraged, rebuked where necessary, that we might better and better walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and bring glory and honor to the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now I'm guessing that most of you here have read the story of the Tower of Babel. Is that correct? Okay, now how old were you? (laughs) Collins, how old were you? You know this story already, don't you? I'll bet you do. I was at least your age. One of the privileges I've had of uh, being able to go in my, well, it wasn't older years when when I started studying at RTS, but it was older years as I finished since it took so long. But one of the privileges of going back and studying in some greater detail is to find out that there's so much more here than just the origin of the languages. It's not that what I learn has contradicted anything I was told as a child. It's just that there's so much more here. I had one professor in his wisdom say, diamonds are not found on the surface. And so we dig a little deeper. And so the danger for you this morning is that maybe we dug too far. And uh, we'll see how this goes. But as a way of beginning, let me just point back to a day in November of 1942. 1942 for Britain. Britain was involved in the World War. They had suffered defeat after defeat early on, and they had come to a battle in North Africa at El Alamein, which Winston Churchill later called the Battle of Egypt. And this was a great victory for them for the first time, really, in the war, kind of a turning point. And in making comments at the Lord Mayor's house back in London, when on hearing of the victory, Winston Churchill used the phrase, which I just really like. He's saying, this is not the end, and this is not even the beginning of the end but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. And that is where we find ourselves here 
when we come to the Tower of Babel, because it comes at the end of uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, obviously, but these are introductory to the whole book of Genesis, and even in some ways introductory to the whole Bible. There are many themes and doctrines and things that are established here in these first 11 chapters that, that we find throughout the scriptures. And they may, they may change exactly how they present themselves, but they are all connected. Um, and one of my hopes this morning is that we see some of these connections. So, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but this is perhaps the end of the beginning, the end of the primeval history, the end of the introduction to Genesis. But to properly understand the story of Babel, we have no choice but to go back and look at a brief survey. And if you wanted to sum up these first 11 chapters of Genesis, you'd say creation, fall, excuse me, creation, fall, flood, recreation, Babel, and then we get to Abraham. And that would sum it up. But there's a very interesting thing that happens here because these things are all connected by genealogies. And if I asked for another show of hands, how many people would say they're just in love reading the genealogies uh, throughout the Bible, right? There's a lot in the genealogies. Some of the ladies in the refuge here would tell you, because we've already been through this section, that the genealogies are extremely important and they take on an importance here. For they're not only what strings these events together in time, but there's also comparisons made from one genealogy to the other. And if you had to sum up the entire first 11 chapters, you could even call it something like the tale of two seeds. A tale of two seeds. And these seeds are in conflict with one another. And if you had to take away one thing from the sermon this morning, if you hear nothing else I I say, then I would want you to take away the phrase, we need the seed. Okay, so repeat that for me. We need the seed. And that is the culmination of what we see here today. So, another phrase that you could use for understanding these first 11 chapters would be escalation and preservation. Because after God created all things and called them good, then we know he created man and woman, put them in the garden, and then we know that man and woman rebelled against God. And so they fell into sin. And when God comes and he investigates the sin and he pronounced judgment over the sin, he also gives this statement of hope wherein he says the seed of the serpent would strike the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the serpent, thereby pointing ahead to a time in the distant future, it turns out, when God promised that the seed would come and destroy the works of the devil. And that is the seed that we need. The seed who would come and destroy the works of the devil. And then as we continue, if you were in Genesis chapter 4, for instance, you remember the story of Cain and Abel, how Cain, who represents the seed of the serpent because he is an evil man, he brings a wrong sacrifice, he commits murder on his brother Abel. Um, And then as you go through his genealogy, as he travels, he goes eastward, which we'll look at in a minute, which is always a sign of trouble in Genesis. He builds a city and names it after his son Enoch. And eventually one of his offspring, whose name is Lamech, is a man who also is a murderer, like his father Cain. But he is somebody who, in the end of chapter 4, rejoices in it, brags about it. And so there is this, this celebration of violence and even pride and arrogance as he figures he's untouchable. And so we see the seed of the serpent. But in spite of sin and its escalation here, God preserves for himself the seed of the woman, through whom the seed one day will come. And so when you come to these genealogies of Seth, who took the place of Cain in chapter 5, it is presented as these people who all live so long. And so the length of life is presented as a blessed genealogy. 
And even within this genealogy, we see comparisons because there is an Enoch. And unlike the Enoch who becomes the title of the city of man in rebellion to God, this is an Enoch who walks with God, and so God takes him. And so what is even more blessed than old age but to walk with God? And God takes him home. So God, in the midst of the escalation of sin, has preserved for himself this line of the seed of the woman pointing to the seed. And then we also come to a character. We have a Lamech in the seed of Cain. We have a Lamech in the line of Seth. And Lamech here is one who is the father of Noah and said, this one will give us rest. And so he is a man of faith and hope as he looks towards the future. And you begin to see then the contrast and comparison between the different genealogies. You should go home and read the genealogies today when we're done. But when we get to chapter 6, in spite of the blessed line, we also see that sin is still there. And we come to this point where it says that the sons of God take the daughters of men, anyone they choose. And no matter what the identities of these people are, what you can say is that this is an act of violence. This is an act of where, where the strong are oppressing the weak and taking advantage of. And it gets so bad... That the Lord even sums it up and says, I have seen that the hearts of men are only evil all the time. The intent of their heart is only evil all the time. And so sin, again, escalation, and yet preservation. Because in 6 verse 8 we see that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And so Noah is the continuation, the preservation of the seed of the woman. And then we hear the story of the flood. And after the flood begins to to subside... And we go through all these different stages that mimic creation, and so we see recreation, and yet, so there's hope. God is going to do something new. God is recreating. And yet, sin reappears almost immediately. And you can just see it takes the, takes the wind out of our sails. As we had hoped that, okay, now God is going to do something new. Now God is going to deal with the seed. Maybe Noah. Maybe Noah is the seed. Okay, but he's not the seed. We still need the seed to come says that men began to multiply again, and God pronounced a blessing in chapter 9, verse 1, where it says that he blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so he gave them the command to go. And very shortly after this, in the covenant of the rainbow, we get another genealogy. Just when we thought we could leave them behind, we get another genealogy. And in the midst of this genealogy, we meet a man named Nimrod, who is a mighty hunter before the Lord, which is just a superlative term saying he's a great man, but he's a violent man. And he is a man who is beginning of an empire builder. Again, we're seeing the seed of the, of the serpent. And we're seeing sin reassert itself and escalate. And he's an empire builder who begins to build cities, including the city of Babel. And that's what takes us ultimately, to our text this morning for chapter 11. We are in this cycle of escalation and preservation, of escalation and preservation. And once again, sin is growing and getting out of hand. And so there is much more to it than just the origin of the languages here. There is a rebellion against God. And so now, if you would look at chapter 11, and let's break this section of our text down. Uh, First four verses. This really divides into two sections. When God comes down, that's the turning point of the text, and then God begins to speak. In the first section, there is no reference to God whatsoever. If you read later in Genesis and you go through the books that deal with Abraham, any time that the story does not include God, Abraham does something he shouldn't have. And here we see the story of man and the man, the plan of man to do a certain thing, and God is not mentioned. God is not in the picture. And when we look at the setting, starting in verse 1, the whole earth used the same language and the same words, and as they journeyed eastward, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. 
The setting here shows that all of mankind is unified. It uses terms like whole earth, one language, literally meaning one lip. They use the very same words or, or source or phrases of communication. But there's trouble brewing because the author says they moved eastward. Now, I, this stuff is fascinating. When, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, which direction were they sent? Away from God to the east. When Cain was told he was going to be a wanderer, what direction did he go? He went to the east. Later, following our episode, when Lot looks around and Abraham tells him, choose all the land, any of the land you want, and go there. What direction does he go? East. He goes east. Anywhere east, at least in these early portions of of Genesis, if not all through Genesis, it's a sign that they are moving away from God. This is one of the ways that the author is telling you that something bad is about to happen. They are not within the plans of God here as they are moving east. So trouble is brewing. And they come together in verse 3 and they say, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and tar for mortar. And they said, Let's build. They said, Let's build. And they said, We're going to build three things. We want to build a city, a tower, and a name. A city, a tower, and a name. Now a city. You know, thanks to Tim Keller and others with their theology of missions to the city, we understand that cities are not evil things. It's not wrong, necessarily, that they were going to build a city for the city's sake. In fact, later on, God tells the Israelites when he takes them out of Egypt, I will give you cities that you did not build, fields that you did not plant. He identifies Jerusalem and says, in that city I will put my name. And if you want to jump all the way to the end, when you see the new Jerusalem, what is it? But a giant city as part of the eschaton, as part of the new heavens and the new earth, as part of glory when God comes and dwells with his people. So a city itself is not evil. But the problem is, within the context of 9 verse 1, when God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he had sent them out. And a city is a determination by the seed of the serpent, these these men, that we will stay here. And yet that's not what God said. So the city itself is not evil. But it is absolutely against the command, the spoken word of God. And they can't say they didn't know, in case you're wondering. Most commentators say, most, the ones I referred to, that couldn't be a most, but it counts, say Noah's probably still alive at this point. So even though this was orally transmitted, the command of God was to go and fill the earth, and they knew it. They knew it. They have set themselves in opposition to the command and the word of God. And God had blessed them in saying, go and fill the earth. The word for blessing in chapter 9 is the word that also gives the empowering to do what God had called them to do. It wasn't just a bare blessing or hope everything goes well, now go on out there. He gave them the ability to multiply, the ability to fill the earth and to have dominion over it. And they simply put their foot down and said, I will not go. And they set out to build themselves a city. And it gets worse. They said, we will build a city, and then let us build a tower. And a tower, a tower in the ancient Near East, was almost always related to religious purposes. You've seen pictures of these ziggurats, and actually it's kind of fascinating, because the the towers of the ancient Near East are also the same as the towers of Central America in their architectural style, showing a common heritage But they would have been a pyramid-shaped thing with many steps and a stairway up the front, which led to a small room at the very top, which was often painted blue like the sky. And it was considered the God house, because there they would enter into the realm of the gods. They said, let us build a tower that would reach to the heavens. And the word for heavens here can refer to sky, but in cases like this, it often and always actually refers to the place of the gods. 
They were actually trying to reach into the realms of heaven. That's how puffed up in arrogance they were. We will go against the command of God. And in fact, we ourselves will reach into the realms of heaven. We will be God. We will be God. And then on top of a city and a tower, they said, let's build a name. Let's build a name for ourselves. A name for ourselves is a reputation. Let's build, let's, let's do something that will make us famous. Let's leave our mark on the world. Let's build a name for ourselves. So a city, a tower, and a name. Now I know none of us ever have any of these problems, do we? Do we? We don't ever hear the word of the Lord and say, I know better. Do we? Yeah. Yeah, I do. We don't ever think that even though God has spoken, that we can figure it out for ourselves or surely he was mistaken or that was for another time. Yeah, I do. We don't ever want to build a name for ourselves. Say, tired of waiting around, tired of not being noticed, whatever the task. Okay? We want someone to notice us. We want someone to think greatly of us. No, we don't do that. I do. Now, they had a motivation for these things as well. Motivation. They said, lest we be scattered, in verse 4. Let's make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. There is here an expression possibly of fear of insecurity, but even that is a lack of faith because God had said go and bless them and said that they could do it. And yet they just don't believe the word of the Lord. So fear, insecurity, but there's also this desire for greatness that shows us in the making of a name. It's characterized by arrogance, defiance, self-reliance. And they were even to work hard at it. (laughs) You know, in the Middle East where Israel lived, they could just cut stones and stack them up and they could make a building, but here they had to make the very bricks. Here they had to make the very tar. They had to work together for an extended period of time with these inferior materials, really. One word for tar, by the way, could mean slime. I mean, they're just not even working with good stuff, but they're determined in what they're doing. And so they're willing to put effort into it. It's a determined, sustained rebellion. But if you boil it down to what is the summary of their sin, it's simply a lack of faith in the Word of God. They are acting as if they knew better than God. That is no different than Adam and Eve, is it not? When God said, you could have all this, but not that. And they said, but that's the one I want. And it's desirable for making me no good and evil. So I know better. Isn't that bottom line here? God has spoken. God has given the command. God has given the ability. But they say they know better. What they're having here is a real crisis or a confusion of this creator-creature distinction. And most of us, most of us probably fail at this point in one way or another. I do. (laughs) You know, it's only a few chapters ago that God, out of nothing, created all things. He created the environment in which he was going to create the creatures to live. And then he creates them and puts them there. And there's a correspondence to their needs and their supply. He did the same thing for mankind in the garden. And then he gave them one command. He gave them boundaries. And they said, I will transgress the boundary because I know better. And so we show ourselves to be sinful. We show ourselves to not understand the creator-creature confusion. We think as the creature we know best. Over the God who made us and put us here. And it's simply a fallacy. It's simply a mistake. 
It's simply wrong-headed. So that's the plan of man. Let us build. Let us build a city, a tower, and a name for ourselves. But then God had a plan of his own. Starting in verse 9, God had a, starting in verse 5 through 9, God had a plan of his own. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, this thing which was supposed to be so impressive, this thing which was supposed to reach into the heavens. God came down to see the tower. This is the author telling us that the tower really is not all that impressive, certainly not to God. It's kind of puny, even though in ancient standards it may have been fairly impressive. To, by God's standards, it's not. No matter how much they worked, no matter how much they desired to achieve, no matter how much effort, no matter how deep-seated the rebellion, they just weren't very impressive. God came down to see the tower. Now, God coming down to see the tower shows that God is a righteous judge. He comes down and he investigates the situation. When Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden, he came down. He asked them, what have you done? This is not God's lack of knowledge. This is God establishing the matter instead of just simply passing judgment. So he comes down as a righteous judge. He evaluates the situation. And we come to this difficult verse in verse 6 because God speaking says, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Now, what is that? Can mankind actually achieve anything and everything if he puts his mind to it and if they all work in concert together? And is this not the lie of some of these other world-leading organizations? You know, if we all just work together and get along, we can do it. I don't believe that's what's being said here. I think God is evaluating the situation, and I think he's expressing uh, fatherly concern. God cares about his creation, not just the people who are in the seed of the woman. He actually cares about his creation. And he sees them giving themselves to what is leading to destruction. And God is expressing concern uh, over the danger that they are to themselves. Because if sin left unchecked, especially people... Have you ever noticed mobs or masses of people will do things that are just absolutely foolish that an individual won't? You know? And so God sets about to restrain their sin. Yes, He also passes judgment on their sin because when it says that the Lord then determined to scatter them, the word for scattered actually has a a connotation of violence. So there is judgment here, but there is also this fatherly concern to spare them. There is also, (laughs) there's a lot here, is there not? There is also the idea that God had already promised that he would not again destroy the earth until the end. And so instead of just wiping them out, he comes up with a scattering so as to slow down or to blunt the, the force or the direction or the results of their sin. He declares, he came down to investigate. In verse 7, he declares that they must be stopped. And yet, since he promised not to destroy um, and that there would be a regularity to the end of time, he passes judgment, he confuses their languages and scatters them, scatters them across the earth um, in confusion. And yet, mixed with mercy as he restrains their sin and sin's rewards. Now the results in verses 8 and 9, the unfinished city of man. You know, what we've been looking at is a conflict of seeds, a tale of two seeds, really kind of morphs into a tale of two cities because man set about to build a city in opposition to God. And here we see that the city of man remains unfinished and yet the continuance of the work of God. So you can call it what you want, call it the city of God, which we will get to in just a couple minutes. But... 
the continuance of the work of God in spite of man's best efforts. So man's sin does not thwart God's plan. And in fact, he even uses it to serve his plans as he confuses their languages and sends them out. God said, go fill the earth. They said no. And so God sent them to fill the earth. Then immediately, our text is followed by genealogy. Now, you're going to go home and read genealogies, right? The genealogy that we now have, we've already mentioned Seth's genealogy in the one prior to this text, but it was, it was actually out of order. Shem being the oldest of the three, he was mentioned last in a little bit of a cursory manner, and it got us to our text, but now we focused on Shem. And Shem, in fact, the, the, this genealogy of Shem matches kind of the genealogy earlier of Seth, as it mentions all the long life with which these people were endowed. And so they were blessed by God once again. This is the line of the seed of the woman, pointing forward someday to the seed that we need. So it parallels... Seth's genealogy also in the number of people listed, I believe, and it leads us to Abram just like the previous genealogy led us to Noah, the seed who brought rest. And now it leads us to Abram. And here God is going to begin to do something new. If you look at God's initial call to Abram, just as we have no choice but to mention this, he calls Abram and says, go forth from your land to a land that I will show you. He goes, go out, I will bless you, I will make your name great. Does it sound familiar? Go forth into a land that I will show you, just like he said, go into all the earth. I will bless you, just like he blessed them. I will make your name great. You won't have to do it for yourself, just like they wanted to build a name. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God's plan is continuing here. In your seed, the one to come. So Abraham, though he is in the line of the seed, is not the seed that we need. There is still a seed to come. Now, how would Israel have heard this? How would Israel have heard this? Moses is committing this to writing for a purpose. He's speaking to a people. How would Israel have heard this? Moses was sent to lead the people out of Egypt into a new land. And maybe after 400 years of slavery, they were thinking, can we really do this? But under the blessings of God and according to the word of God... This is what they were being called to do. And so the way forward for them was to listen to the word of the Lord and trust in their creator as the one who knows best. There's no place there for fear, for insecurity, neither for arrogance that thinks maybe they could come up with a better plan. And so the obvious parallel for us, you know, how should we hear this? There's no place for fear, there's no place for insecurity, for arrogance. The people in the Tower of Babel's time didn't have a written word, but they had the word of the Lord. Do you realize the treasure we have? Committed to writing. Available every minute of the day. The word has spoken. The word of the Lord has been given. And the way forward here is the way forward then is to trust in the word of the Lord. Trust in the word that is revealed. Now, I didn't bring a watch. I'm free to continue. Let me, believe it or not, I will do this quickly. We've still got a problem here. You know, we can draw lessons from that, but we can't take that in its isolation. The problem of sin continues. Sin is not gone. You know, Abram was not a perfect man. He showed that he himself was not the seed. He was not the seed that we need. He's not the seed that we are looking for, although he is in the line of the seed. He is not the one. 
And yet, in Abraham, God begins to do something new. Because up until now, we've seen the escalation of sin and the preservation of the seed. But now God begins to build. As man set out to build a city, now God begins to build a city. Or even a kingdom, if you will, as these things kind of morph throughout the scriptures. God sets out to build and he calls himself a man. He gives to him land, blessing, name, a seed. In chapter 17, he said, kings will come forth from you. God is building a kingdom and yet... Abe is not a perfect man, so Abe is not the seed that we need. We continue on through our genealogies and find out that Abraham had Isaac and Jacob, who had Judah, who eventually produced for us David. And David wanted to build a house for the Lord, but the Lord said, No, I will build a house for you, and I will make your name great, and I will establish your kingdom, and I will put a son of yours upon the throne. I will yet provide the seed. But David, being not a perfect man, was not the seed. But the seed now has come. The seed has come because Jesus Christ is the seed. In Matthew, the very beginning of Matthew, the very beginning of the New Testament, announcing the arrival of the seed who is the king, shows us that Jesus, starting with the genealogy, by the way, is is the seed of David, is the seed of Abraham. And in the genealogy in Luke, we find out he's also the seed of Noah, the seed of Adam, the son of God. This is the seed of the woman promised way back at the beginning who now has come to destroy the works of the devil, to free his people finally from sin's curse, from sin's control, from sin's power, to gather his people together into one church, no longer scattering them but reversing the effects of the sin and this rebellion, to gather them together into one church, one body, even into one choir as we look in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, gathered to sing a new song with one voice. And then we come to the very end, because Babel didn't disappear. The city was left uncompleted, but the city of man and all that that represents as in rebellion to God did not disappear. In fact, Babel, really is Babylon, came on to kind of epitomize the enemy of God's people, the enemy of Israel, came to represent all that opposes God. And yet in the very end, in Revelation, in the judgment, it says that the judgment comes on Babylon, the city of man, in one day as it is burned up with fire. And so the city of man comes to the end (laughs) that, that was obvious, the end it could not avoid. Because starting in sin, it reaped sin's rewards. But yet the city of our God... In Revelation 21, coming down out of heaven in its perfection, not built with bricks and slime, but with foundations of precious stones. Perfection, the city of God, in all of its completeness, in all of its beauty, in all of its glory. Because the seed has come, the seed that we need, the seed has come. And God is building his kingdom. So what about you? I always have to end with a question. I want you to go home thinking. What about you? The way forward is not in your rebellion. The way forward is not in self-reliance or thinking you know best, thinking you know better than the creator of all things, but in surrendering yourself rather to the will of God, trusting in Jesus, the seed who has come to set his people free and to gather them into one. It is in learning to listen to the word of the Lord, And walking by faith, trusting in the Lord. We are coming up on a celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And so I must close with a quote I found from John Calvin. It's what Presbyterians do, right? 
So hear this, as the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves, so the only haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom than to follow the Lord wherever he leads. Amen.